some years ago, um, while practicing in Korea, I partially satisfied a, an interest in question of what are hermits? What does it mean to live in live a hermit's life? And so I visited uh, <clears throat> two hermits. Uh, one in uh, who lived in a little house set high in the mountains, right on the edge. And then another hermit, another part of Korea, uh, who lived in a cave. Um, <clears throat> and I spent time with both of them. In both cases, it was very difficult to get to. That was part of it. But they did see people. Both were... Well, one was somewhere between about 85 and the other was, he didn't know how old he was. The villagers at the bottom of the mountain thought he was somewhere between 90 and 100. But it was confusing. The first hermit that I visited and spent some time with seemed restless and irritable, impatient. He just seemed really like a neurotic. I mean, it was hard to admit that because he was wearing Buddhist robes and I had a whole romantic thing about it, but my honest opinion was he seemed very neurotic to me. Uh, and it felt as if, um, it really, I mean, I know it's a little funny, but it isn't, because it felt as if he couldn't live with people, and that's why he was up there. It felt almost as if he couldn't live with or without people. And I was really relieved when it was time to go. Although, you know, he certainly tried to be hospitable and so forth. The second hermit was even more difficult to get to. It was really difficult. He needed a guide. And it was just the opposite. Uh, he was somewhere between 90 and 100 was one estimate. Uh, he was playful just like a teenager, just glowing, radiant. His cave was spotless. <laughs> really, really was. And it was set up like a small temple, small Buddhist temple, and he would, at certain times of the day, like early in the morning, bow 108 times to the Buddha and chant and do everything that the monks in the monasteries were doing, but he'd been there for a very long time, 40 or 50 years. And he was just a delight to be with and, and uh, was a tremendous help, understood so much about life in the world, even though he was up there. He was very clear and listened very carefully and uh, just so, just sunshine. It was really nice to be with him. But it was confusing uh, to be with both hermits and that uh, was that for a while. And then some years later, in the, uh, in the literature, in the suttas, I can't say it's an exact parallel, but it turns out that there are two, two suttas, one having to do with a, um, a hermit 
who the Buddha praised often, and his, this hermit's poetry is uh, in, uh, you know, you can read it, it's available, some of it. Um, and another hermit who seemed more like the first one, a little bit, and that gave rise to a, a, a sutta, which is on ideal solitude. It's sometimes translated as the, the love of ideal solitude. Or about being alone. What does that mean? And let me read to you it. I, actually, the, the reason I've, we're going into it is that I hope it will have tremendous bearing on what we'll be doing for the rest of this week and give us some really useful guidance, particularly the second one, which I'll read to you, uh, and begin to talk about tonight. We may need more than tonight. I'm pretty sure we will. Um, I hope you see its relevance, its importance for our own practice. Let me... um, Uh, let me just tell you about the first one, <laughs> since I didn't bring it. Um, it's simply a, a, a monk who lived alone, who went on alms round alone, who meditated alone, who walked alone, uh, but was highly respected by everyone. And uh, the Buddha wrote a, a, a gata, a short verse. Um, basically in praise of this monk and uh, living a life of enlightenment in solitude. And then, and some, some uh, suggest that this next monk who is called Tara, and this is called the Sutra on Knowing True Solitude. Bade Karata Sutta, you can, you can find it. Um, in this case, uh, what is what? Uh, one speculation is that the Buddha did praise solitude a lot, and so many people tried to do that. Many monks tried to live in solitude, and this particular monk, it seemed to other monks, uh, seemed to be mainly enmeshed in the form of being alone. That he too would go on alms round alone. He would sit alone. He'd live alone. Um, but the monks were a little concerned about him. Uh, they felt there was something unstable about his living alone. So he's a bit different than the other, the first one. And so they uh, went to the Buddha and the Buddha had a conversation with him. And I'll skip the conversation uh, much, but the essence of it is that the Buddha didn't reject him or put him down and say, that's really fine what you're doing, the way you're walking, doing walking meditation alone, sitting alone, going on arms around alone, living alone. But really, this isn't the real solitude, what you're doing. 
and went on, of course, to teach him what the true solitude was. Uh, and it was a, a better way to be alone. He gave him a better way to be alone. Um, and in the process, uh, gave a sermon which laid out a very interesting uh, way of looking at solitude. Not, uh, I think, an uncommon way. But as you hear it, I hope it makes some sense and you'll see how, um, I think, deep and helpful this teaching can be for us. Uh, I'm going to read to you uh, this, what the Buddha said. I'm going to read you the, this sermon. Uh, why don't we see if we can put the breath into practice in a way that we haven't yet, unless some of you have. Um, Attune yourself to your breathing. And it's said that in the Anapanasati Sutra, that is the Sutra on the Full Awareness of Breathing, which to some degree we're practicing on this retreat, that it's helpful in so many things, including listening. So see if it's possible, if you stay with your breathing, see if that doesn't help you stay more mindful and to hear these words. If you've never done that, at first it may be confusing, it may feel as if you're trying to do two things at the same time. But I think after a while you see that it can be helpful. Anyway, let's find out. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in the Jetta Grove in the town of Sravasti. He called all the monks to him and instructed them, Bhikkhus, for those of you who are new here, that means monks. And the bhikkhus replied, We are here. The Blessed One taught. I will teach you what is meant by true solitude. I'll begin with an outline of the teaching. And then I will give a detailed explanation. Bhikkhus, please listen carefully. That's all of us. Blessed One, we are listening. The Buddha taught. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now. I'm going to repeat that. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells stably and in freedom. We must be diligent today to wait till tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who knows how to dwell in mindfulness night and day the one who knows how to live alone. Because what do we mean by pursuing the past? Now there's a bit of a, the Buddha's own, a bit of a commentary, very brief, on the words he's just given, some of them. Because what do we mean by pursuing the past? When someone thinks about the way his body was in the past, the way his feelings were in the past, 
the way his perceptions were in the past, the way his mental factors or mental formations, sometimes translated, were in the past, the way his consciousness was in the past. When he thinks about these things and his mind is burdened by and attached to these things which belong to the past, then that person is pursuing the past. That's how he is using that term. That's how he means it. Because what is meant by not pursuing the past. When someone thinks about the way his body was in the past, the way his feelings were in the past, the way his perceptions were in the past, the way his mental factors were in the past, the way his consciousness was in the past. When he thinks about these things, but his mind is neither burdened, enslaved by, nor attached to these things which belong to the past, then that person is not pursuing the past. Because what is meant by losing yourself in the future? Please stay in touch with your breathing as you see if it helps you to listen. What is meant by losing yourself in the future? When someone thinks about the way his body will be in the future, the way his feelings will be in the future, the way his perceptions will be in the future, the way his mental factors will be in the future, the way his consciousness will be in the future, when he thinks about these things and his mind is burdened by and daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then that person is losing himself in the future. Because what is meant by not losing yourself in the future? When someone thinks about the way his body will be in the future, the way his feelings will be in the future, the way his perceptions will be in the future, the way his mental factors will be in the future, the way his consciousness will be in the future. When he thinks about these things, but his mind is not burdened by or daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then he is not losing himself in the future. The Buddha then goes on to talk about the present and says, because what is meant by being swept away by the present? When someone does not study or learn anything about the awakened one or the teachings of love and understanding or the community that lives in harmony and awareness, that's the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. When that person knows nothing about the noble teachers and their teachings and does not practice these teachings and thinks, this body is myself, I am this body. These feelings are myself, I am these feelings. This perception is myself, I am this perception. This mental factor is myself, I am this mental factor. This consciousness is myself, I am this consciousness. Then that person is being swept away by the present. Because what is meant by not being swept away by the present. When someone studies and learns about the awakened one, the teachings of love and understanding, and the community that lives in harmony and awareness, when that person knows about noble teachers and their teachings, 
practices these teachings and does not think, this body is myself, I am this body. These feelings are myself, I am these feelings. This perception is myself, I am this perception. This mental factor is myself, I am this mental factor. This consciousness is myself, I am this consciousness. Then that person is not being swept away by the present. Because I've presented the outline and the detailed explanation of knowing true solitude. Thus the Buddha taught and the bhikkhus were delighted to put his teachings into practice. Bade Karata Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 131. We'll go into it a little bit in a little bit more detail. Um, I think we'll probably need to, uh, another another time. What I'd like to do is to begin to clarify the significance of this teaching uh, by our own practice, by just what we're doing here. In what way is it related to these teachings? In a nutshell, the Buddha is talking about not so much the problem of having the past come up in the mind, but how we relate to the past when it does come up in the mind. And so the fact that the past comes up in the mind is not necessarily suffering. But how we relate to it is of of, uh, the greatest importance. Now, In this teaching, what he is implying is that alone, it's often uh, paired with to live with another and alone. Those two go together. And these, both these monks were in solitude. And the Buddha refers to living with another, not meaning necessarily a person, another person. It's when you get attached to the stuff in your mind. It's on a very subtle level that you're no longer in solitude. So what you're living with are all those creations in your mind. The first is simply solitude of the body. That is, the body is away from other bodies. And that can look very holy. And that can be in a direction and be a tremendous help, certainly for periods of time, to do that. But there's more to go, because if a person's in the forest... For example, and I know one person like this. I don't think he would mind my describing him this way because he's described himself this way. He was living in the forest in Thailand, but he said much of the time he was walking around all day long thinking, I'm a monk in the forest in Thailand. I'm a monk in the forest in Thailand. I'm a monk in the forest. Well, who would be more free? That person or let's say uh, one of us. If we had a three-piece suit on or high heels and, and makeup, but our mind was just clear. We weren't thinking we were anyone. And I don't mean amnesia. <laughs> so the Buddha is pointing out a subtlety having to do with uh, not getting attached to the form of just the body being away from other bodies. And Again, it can be the same with the future. It's not, there's nothing wrong with the future. Or even the mind to 
to contemplate the future. We have to do it sometimes. We all have to do it to get here. But in both cases, in the past, when stuff from the past comes up, when stuff from the future comes up, are we solidly planted in the present? If you're solidly planted in the present, you can work with the future. You can plan. You can speculate. You can take care of your future in certain ways that are intelligent. And it comes out of reality. It comes out of being solidly planted in the present. Similarly, you can draw upon the past if you're solidly planted in the present. And if you're not, then you get lost. And even though your body may be in the forest, you're living with a big crowd. Put the other way, because of really important implications for us, since most of us probably won't be living in such solitude, either ever or not very much. What it's suggesting is the real essence of the solitude. Finally, it doesn't really have so much to do with forest or city, but the state of our mind, our relationship to the productions of our mind. What the mind throws out about the past, what the mind throws out about the future, and then how we relate to the present. Do we get, do we drown in what's happening, actually happening to us in the present? I don't know, maybe that's all we need to say about the sutra, but let's go to our practice. So far, we're working on that aspect of our practice that's called shamatha or samatha in Pali. And it has to do with the development of serenity, calm, tranquility. And the, the partner that, work, that has to be developed and coordinated with this, with the serenity has to do with our, the work of wisdom, vipassana, insight, discernment. And one model, it's not the only one, but a, a central one that the Buddha used was developing calm. Both need to be developed and they needn't be developed. First you do calm, then you do wisdom. But roughly to some degree, the calmness as a prelude to working with with wisdom in a more concerted way, building on the calmness that you've developed so that the wisdom can have some depth to it. So that we're, in a sense, uh, we're training the mind so that it's fit to do the work of inquiry and investigation. And the two together are our practice, sometimes called shamatha vipassana. And to begin with, we learn how to develop one and the other, and we learn how to alternate back and forth. And finally, it can become quite unified so that both really, it's one practice, it's a serene reflection. Reflection here not meaning thinking. And so, since Friday night, what we've been working on has been mainly uh, this calmness aspect of our practice. And let's uh, look at it in some detail, the implications of what we've been doing and how it relates to this sutta. Probably all of us in this room by now know uh, that the mind is tremendously preoccupied. 
Is there anyone who's exempt from that? Please come up here and just finish up for me, because I could use all the help I can get. So it seems to be normal for the mind, for minds to be preoccupied. So don't nothing personal. Don't don't feel so bad about it. Just if you have a mind, you're preoccupied. So this, that, and the other, and essentially something in the future, something in the past, something in the present, preoccupied, right? And what we're attempting to do is uh, a rather simple, not easy, but simple thing is we're uh, suggesting that we trade all of these wonderful, incredible preoccupations. Most of them are not so wonderful, actually. Right? Or is it just my mind? <laughs> we're exchanging that for one simple object, the breath. We're just saying, yeah, all of that stuff. I want this and I don't want that and memories and plans and worries and anxiety and fear and all of it. Let it go. Let it go and come back to breathing in, breathing out. We're doing that over and over and over again. We're trying to do it in a very gentle way so it's not a struggle. Now, when you get caught in any of these preoccupations, it's what the Buddha is talking about. That is where so many of them are the future or are the past. Can anyone give me one from, let's say, one that's been coming up a lot about the past? Just, it'd be better if it's our own practice. Anyone? Just anything that's come up. Girlfriends. Past girlfriends. Torment, uh, no, we're preoccupied, any torment or preoccupied? Yeah. Anyone future? No one has a future here, very good. Yeah. Uh, pr- what? As so much that it pulls you away from, the, from let's say, the, the practice, the breathing? Yeah. You know, and there the, the common ones that come up so often here, if they haven't, very often they do, that is... The future ones often have to do with um, wanting good sittings. Let's say if you've had a good sitting uh, and then you go to lunch and then you, co- you come back or you could do walking and you can't wait to get back to the cushion because it was so good in that last sitting which was only 45 minutes and this is an hour sitting come up, coming up it would be that much better. And you sit down and you can't even find your nostrils. <laughs> you know. And we suffer. Or this one was reported to me, somebody who was practicing at home and was finally starting to see the the fruit of the practice, sitting two hours a day, one hour in the morning, one hour at night. And he just did a two-week retreat we finished here last month. And he, in effect, calculated, well, boy, I'm getting so calm and concentrated just by sitting an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening. And he calculated how many hours of sitting he'd be doing when he came up here for the schedule, it'd just be so much more calm and concentrated. It might have been if he didn't have that thought. (laughs) Or one, I don't know if you have, but I don't know, in the old days, it used to be very common, you'd have, let's say, a number of good sittings, and then the mind would start thinking, well, how do you get a visa for Thailand or Burma? (laughs) I wonder how I'd look with a shaven head. And then you have a bad sitting and you just want to pack and leave here and go home. 
I mean, you go from Burma back to Cambridge in maybe an hour. (laughs) Okay, so we all know that we have a very simple, and and perhaps you've all seen it in its own way, a very beautiful object, breathing its life itself. Life comes in, wastes go out. It's It's a natural rhythm, much like the tides or the sun or the moon or anything, but this one is really much more intimate in a way. It's right there. We're right there with it. Each breath is our life. And so we keep coming back. And the mind keeps creating things, throwing them out, and then we run after them, these, these preoccupations. Um, in my own practice, I don't know, do you ever have the... Uh, Sometimes you'll hear a line, read a line or a paragraph or a statement by someone. It sticks with you for your whole life. It just, for some reason, it registers and you don't have to memorize it. You can remember it and it's helpful countless times. For me, and those of you who come from Cambridge, you can go to sleep now because you've heard this enough times. Um, One day watching a dog run after a bone, uh, I suddenly saw it for the first time and I couldn't believe it. You know, just some, it wasn't even a real bone. It was one of these plastic things that they make now. And the bone would be thrown, the dog would run after it, bring it back. And then someone would throw the bone, the dog would run after it, bring it back. And people would laugh. And after a while, people weren't even paying attention. They were just throwing it. They weren't even laughing. And the dog kept running after the bone. I couldn't believe there was, there was chewing on it. No real nourishment at least some of the time, chewing on it as if there were, or there's some uh, desperate hope that there might be some meat or something on it, on this bone. And yet, no indefatigable, constantly running after this bone. And it just struck me as hilarious. That's exactly what my mind is. As the mind just keeps throwing things out, and I keep running after them. That old girlfriend, oh, I'll go running after that one. She's probably married and has ten children by now. <laughs> and divorced, you know. And, oh, that's no good. You might, you might, <laughs> you might think there's still hope. Get, that could spoil two more sittings for you. <laughs> then I read somewhere that lions, and this makes sense, of course, they don't run after anything. So... I don't know if it's true, but whether it's true or not, it's a useful image and it's helped me. If you throw a bone, can you imagine a lion running after the bone? I mean, it wouldn't be a lion, it would be a dog. It doesn't. It, it looks at where the bone came from. <laughs> okay. okay, you understand, yeah. Uh, so in Cambridge, I use this a lot, and of course, a fair number of people are tired of hearing it, but it's been very efficient for me. And, and some people in interviews, sometimes I just go, bow wow, bow wow, and they know what I mean, or I'll just roar. And I say bow wow to myself, and it's very helpful. It just clears the mind. Okay, but let's say before we see our predicament, before we're given this uh, very simple option, which we didn't know we had, that uh, you didn't have to keep 
getting stuck in all those different preoccupations. But actually, you could, you had an option that you could lift your attention from it and place it on the breathing. Oh. Now, when we were caught up in those preoccupations, obviously we were not in the present moment. We weren't alive and in the present moment. In a certain sense, in solitude. The kind of aloneness the Buddha is talking about has nothing to do with not being connected with people. You can be more connected with people when the mind is in solitude. It's more direct. You're experiencing everything directly when it's not cluttered. So the training has been to come back and to, to the degree to which we're doing it, we're gaining experience in being in the present moment, being with this breath, this in-breath, this out-breath. And then after a while, even the breath can become a problem. It can become like a kind of a, a dull object. where because we do it so often, we fall asleep regarding it. And the the repetition becomes mechanical and dull. And we just do it as a kind of drill. You know, the mind runs away, we go back. The mind runs away, we go back. And there's no freshness or joy in the practice. And I think what we have to do is to, or what's helpful is to enter into the spirit of that repetition The truth is we repeat a lot of things all day long. It's not just the breath. How many more times do we have to wash up and then get dirty and then wash up again and then get dirty and then wash up and then eat and then go to the toilet then eat and go to the toilet then eat and go to the toilet take our clothes off, put our clothes on take our clothes off, put our clothes on. (laughs) We're doing a lot of things over and over and over and over and over again. So it's nothing new that we have the breath. It may seem new because it's not too... It didn't have much of a press until we started getting interested in Buddhism. But as you look closely, there really, it isn't, there is, really isn't even repetition. Uh, repetition's impossible. No two things are the same. No two breaths are the same. And if you can relate to the breathing not so much as this kind of mechanical doing it over and over again, but more in the spirit of mastery of something or refinement. And I think this is very helpful for all of us because so much of what we do typically in the modern world, we do a lot of things and maybe not so well. We don't do them all too well, not too thoroughly. Everything's so easy. And we always want a lot of excitement and quickly or we want fruit very quickly and as you know that's not what happens here unless you surrender to the moment then each the breath is just a very beautiful sitting conscious breathing is very beautiful simple as it is you can be happy just sitting and breathing so in in some ways it's not that this is a new technique but it's been helpful always but for us It's a lot of training and simplicity, which I think we desperately need. Life has become so complicated that I don't think complex medicine is going to to heal the complex problems that we have. We need to get more simple. And now, and I think this training in breath awareness is one way. It's not the only way, of course. One very natural and easy way uh, to begin to do that, to just to refine something, to do one thing really well, 
really refine that uh, and to develop a practice. Now, some of the things that can help us stay in the moment, not get so caught in the future, caught in the past, or drown in even in the present, can be to, to, the reflection on these preoccupations themselves. This is a, a Buddhist practice that's quite useful. From time to time, and sometimes I'll do it before I start a sitting, uh, you can do it in the midst of a sitting, but don't do a huge amount of it, but reflect on those preoccupations. For example, so many of the things that come up in the mind, ask yourself, honestly, just what do they amount to? So much of the energy that's, that's used by the mind in all those, preoccup- all those bones that the mind runs after. And I'm not trying to condemn it. You look, look honestly and in your own terms, see if it's valuable. What I found is that very little of it leads to peace or to joy or to happiness. Sometimes, you know, a very nice thought or a nice image. But a lot of it is, is really repetitive. It's a kind of a rut, rehearsing for what we're going to say over and over again. And then when the time comes, we don't even say it. The rehearsal is just... Someone uh, looked the wrong way at us 20 years ago and we're still angry at them. (laughs) You know, that mind has no sense of humor at all. But that's what we're preferring. We prefer that. We, We seem to prefer to run after that bone as unfulfilling, as lacking in nourishment as, as it is. And so we need to be re-educated and we, it's, it, it comes from our intelligence, our own sensitivity. It's very helpful to begin to see that this way in which the mind works is not fulfilling, not really. Just like in the outer world, we do many things that are not fulfilling and we keep doing them anyway. And sometimes someone will bring us to question that. Well, why do you do it if you don't enjoy that? Why do you get together with those people if it's... I don't know. Every Tuesday we go bowling. (laughs) But now I'm a big meditator. I'm beyond bowling. But I still do it. And so sometimes a reflection and seeing just what uh, do these preoccupations really amount to in our own terms, not anything the Buddha might have said or anyone else. You in your own terms, see if it, what it comes to for you. And then you can flip it around, especially those times when you're really simple and sitting and breathing consciously. Uh, I hope everyone in this room, if not now, during the retreat, even if you have a few breaths where it's just so nice to just be sitting there and just to be alive, just to be sitting and breathing. And it can be a major discovery to find out that it's possible to be quite happy to just be sitting and breathing consciously. And you're not really accumulating all kinds of things and no one's told you you're beautiful or handsome or you haven't inherited any money. All the other things. And even then, when we experience it, very often we don't believe it or we don't value it. It takes quite a while to understand that we have the means to our own, for our own happiness right in the present moment, right inside ourselves. It's all here, whatever we need. And so both reflecting on how much time and energy and suffering comes from the, so much of the preoccupation that we get invested in. 
and some of the joy and peace that can come from just a simple thing like sitting or walking or, you know, by extension, sipping a cup of tea or eating food or whatever it is we do here. Now, um, Uh, I think I'll save some other remarks for the, for uh, the next time. But let me, let me encourage all of us, keeping in mind the spirit of what we ju- the sutta that was just read about living in the present moment fully, and that means not getting caught up in the past, caught up in the future drowning in the present when we get all identified with what's happening to us. We'll go into that in a bit more detail. But for right now, let me... um, I know that for some of you, it may seem extreme to be encouraged to stay with the breath all the time. How many feel that? You know, it it doesn't matter. It's just for my... Yeah. Different. Oh, that's that's all right. It is different, yeah. Let me... um, give you a little bit of a sense of that. And I hope that can encourage you until the point where you develop genuine conviction, which comes from your own experience. It's not that different from other ways of practicing. You know that some of you have been in Zen and, and you can use a koan and you can really be doing the koan day and night. And some of you know the power of that. Or those of you who practice in the Mahasi Sayadaw uh, lineage, of mental notes, keeping the mental notes going throughout the day, or mantra. Now, at first, it seems like an insurmountable task. And it's not to grind away. Please don't. I mean, it's done, it's a light touch. You're already breathing. So there's not really anything you have to add except to notice that you're already breathing. And to unite the breath with what you're doing. Now, in the hall, it's straightforward, and we'll use the breath in somewhat different ways as the, as the retreat unfolds. But what we've been encouraging you to do is to unite the breath with other things as well. Let's say you're just taking a walk, not formal walking, but just walking from here to the dining room. Stay in touch with your breathing as you do that. If you need help, you can say something like, in, out, in, out. You can feel the breath happening as you're walking. If you have your job, let's say whatever your job is uh, at the center, vacuuming or cutting vegetables, you can learn to stay in touch with the breathing. Now, the reason for it, finally, it's not so much about breath. It's about awareness. It's about mindfulness. That is, uh, the breath is one very simple, time-tested and lovely way, one, not the only way, uh, to help the mind um, diminish and even eliminate unnecessary thinking and forgetfulness. We keep getting lost. You know, minutes and hours go by and we're on and on. The mind's rolling on and on about this, that, and the other thing. And you can come back sometimes to just one in-breath and there you are again, planted firmly in the present. So it's 
It has value in, t- in the sense that it helps nourish mindfulness. The mindfulness that we use uh, with what, in whatever we're doing. So the key is the mindfulness. But breath, as many of you know, is a very interesting life force. It conditions the mind and is conditioned by the mind. It conditions the body and is conditioned by the body. It's quite available, and as we make the breath conscious, the quality of of the breathing changes quite naturally, even without trying to change it. And as the quality of the breath changes, the quality of the mind and body changes. Have you seen that? Have any of you seen that? Even the beginnings of, as the breath settles down, becomes more refined, smoother, longer, deeper, more even, that it's easier to sit, the body becomes more relaxed, the mind becomes more clear and fresh. So the breath is poised between mind and body in an interesting way, and so it can help develop energy and can help keep us awake. And it's the wakefulness that's the heart of our practice. So I would encourage you to Little by little, at your own pace, learn how to unite the breath with whatever you're doing. And if you're taking a long walk around the loop, and I would encourage you to do that, do some natural things. Walk in the woods and stay with your breathing as you walk. You can learn how to do it. Give it a a try. It's, It's not that it's for everyone. Some of you may have other techniques that are better for you, and that's fine. But if you don't give it a try, you'll never find out. And so at least for a while, see if you can... uh, Remember that you're breathing. And little by little, bring that into your practice. Now, starting tomorrow, we can start right now. Actually, starting now, there's a practice used in in certain Asian monasteries where they call it the bell of mindfulness. And the, the bell, when it's used, sometimes it's used, there's a bell master who's appointed, and this person will ring the bell at any time, whenever they, for example, if in this talk, if the bellmaster were here and saw that attention was starting to wane, the bell would be hit. And then we all just stop what we're doing. I would be quiet, you'd be quiet, and we would be with three or four breaths, just feel the breath, and then we start in again. Well, we're not going to do that here because we'd all, it would drive us crazy. We already have enough bells. <laughs> and if we added some more untimely bells, we'll uh, have to go to another retreat to to heal us from this one. (laughs) But what we can do is use the already already existing system of bells. And so what I would suggest, and we'll remind you because at first you won't remember, uh, when you hear a bell, just pause. I mean, there may be some times where you can't. If it's something hot and you're in the kitchen, you know, use your judgment. But by and large, you can stop what you're doing well, let's say the first bell, and when you hear the wake-up bell, just lie in bed, and after you hear the bell, be with your breath. Be with three or four breaths consciously. If you're doing the walking meditation, formal walking meditation, and the bell is hit ending the walking meditation, come to a halt, just stand and experience three or four breaths consciously. At the end of the sitting, we're supposed to be watching the breath anyway. But if you're not, then, you know, then come back to it when the bell rings. And at all other times, when the bell rings, just stop. And just experience the breath just as it is. And then resume 
action, whatever you're doing.